Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. This is Mark Charbonneau. I'm the lead pastor at The Vine, and I'm real excited about this sermon series, Unsubscribe. This week we're talking about unsubscribing from antagonisms. Uh, The first five minutes of this message has a weird sound thing, but I just want to let you know that it clears up after that. So if it's uh, too annoying, don't worry, press on. Um, And I hope this message is an encouragement to you. Sometimes I walk here through the halls of Covington, and I'm not sure about you, but I'm kind of transported back to my own middle school years, unfortunately. Uh, The uncomfortable, painful years of adolescence. Uh, Was it hard for anyone else? Was it challenging for anyone else, or was it just me? I, uh, when I talk to a middle schooler today, I just want to grab them by the arms and just say to them, it's going to get better. <laughs> just hang on. Uh, and what makes it harder some, for some of us, many of us it, it, in middle school is that there usually is a, a person or a handful of people for which they seem to take delight in making your middle school experience even harder. They seem to love it. Uh, I had someone in my middle school years who loved to see me just squirm and just be painful. Uh, Let's just call him Chris, because that's what his name was. (laughs) His name was Chris. Uh, It didn't matter how many times I tried to convince Chris that I could not fit my locker. He wanted to try one more time. Um, But I remember just walking the halls looking for Chris. Is Chris here today? I'm not sure. Maybe he's there. Uh, and I came up with the strategy of how I was going to get back at Chris. I remember one day in particular uh, choosing to wear house slippers to school, orchestrating this moment so that when I was walking down the hallway and Chris stopped me and said, Charbonneau, why are you wearing house slippers? I could say to him, because I don't care what you think. Boom. Because that's like payback for getting a swirly. Or another time, I remember how Chris would sit behind me in this one class, and he would just kick the basket underneath my desk. He would just constantly just do this to you. You know, anyone else have that that memory? So I showed up one day early to school and just lathered that basket with super glue, thinking that when his foot touches it, it'll stick. And I just remember it just being sticky. Like, it wasn't like, nothing happened. It was just weird, and then my books got stuck to it, my folders got stuck to it. But take that, Chris. Or another time, I remember in high school, yes, it kept going. Uh, and In high school, I was a part of this very elite group of trombones <laughs> and a tuba who at the pep rallies and at uh, the halftime of, uh, uh, of the football game, we would march around and we would play some hip modern 80s music that no one really cared about. And uh, Chris loved it. He loved it. I mean, the rest of the students didn't like it, but Chris loved it because when else are these people stationary holding metal things to their mouth and can you just throw coins at them? I mean, oh, that was Chris. And uh, what was pretty awesome about it was um, 20 years later, I was had boarded a plane in Dallas. And I'm sitting there getting my routine, trying to act like I'm, you know, spreading out over the next chair next to me so that someone didn't sit next to me. And who walks up but Chris? And I thought to myself, it is payback time. I mean, I mean, because look at me, like the ugly duckling has now become the swan, right? Uh, and I uh, was like, oh, I was getting ready for my zingers, being like, I hated you. 
you're the worst person ever. Then all of a sudden he goes, Mark. I was like, what? He goes, hey, buddy. And he started talking to me. I was like, no, Chris, we're not going to be buddies. I hate you. I've hated you for decades. And we had this encounter, and he was so kind and hospitable and warm, and I think he even wanted to sit next to me, and I just, no, no. And I remember he, as he went back to his chair, uh, I remember thinking to myself, like, he has no clue the role he's played in my life. And that's the role of an enemy, right? Someone who is just your opposition, someone for which you just have held disdain. And I think for me, that's just an image for the way in which the the role of antagonisms play in our life, the role opposition plays in our life, because our lives are riddled with enemies. And our culture, I think, is marked by what I call antagonisms, which which is just this general sense of hostility that we have. That's rampant within our society. Just this general sense of hostility, antagonisms that we have that's covering our days. So many reports are coming out now, as sociologists are studying our culture, and they're coming out and saying that our society is increasingly polarized. It's like there's becoming less and less ground for middle ground for people. And what, what's making that more difficult is that in the midst of this polarization of our societies, being civilized is also decreasing as well. Just the way in which we uh, are losing civility and how we treat each other. This is fueled, of course, by the polarity in our news sources, the ability that we have now to go online and find our own community that believes what, what we want to believe, and it just creates this, this, uh, this echo chamber of our own perspective which accelerates disdain for the others and creates more and more antagonism. Our disdain will continue to grow and grow, and I know that we don't just stop it when we come into church, that we bring in that antagonisms, and what makes this incredibly problematic is that I believe this goes so contrary to the way of Jesus, to live with this general sense of disdain for others. So we're going to take a deep dive into an obscure and beautiful Old Testament passage. And though it's not obvious, I believe that this story is going to teach us so much about how to to unsubscribe from antagonism in our our life and how we can find another way. So this story comes in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. As we see here in the context of this story, just kind of set it up a little bit, is that uh, there was an enemy to Israel. Uh, Arameans, and they were trying to attack Israel, but each time they tried to attack Israel, they had a problem. And it was that a a man named Elisha, who was a prophet, was being told by God when they were going to attack, how they were going to attack, where they were going to attack. And so he was able to warn the king of Israel and say, uh, be prepared, they're about to attack at a certain time. It happened over and over again, enough where the king of Aram actually said, okay, who is the spy in my inner court? Who's actually telling them about what's happening, our plans? And they said, it's none of us. There's actually a prophet named Elisha who knows the very thing that you, very words you speak in your own bedroom. And so uh, the king had this plan then uh, to, um, (laughs) Chris would love this moment. Uh, so the, the king had this plan, then if I can take out Elisha, then I can take out uh, any hope that they're, they're going to have to fight us. And so uh, this is what their plan was. They, they planned to uh, find out where he was. This is in uh, verse 13. 
So uh, this was the words of the king. So go find out where he is so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. So the thought is, obviously, I'm going to take out the communication piece here so that I can attack, and there's no way that they're going to know about it. And so in the darkness of night, chariots and horses and soldiers went and surrounded Elisha and his camp. Now, if you were these soldiers, just want to ask this question. If you were these soldiers, what would be going on through your mind? For me, I'd be thinking, if, if he knew that we were going to attack uh, the soldiers and the army over there, wouldn't he know that we're coming tonight? But they were there. They were there, and uh, if, if Elisha did know about them being there, he did not tell the servant, because this is what happened next. Uh, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, this is in verse 15, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I like to imagine this servant in this moment, hearing these words of those who are with us are more than those who are with them and just looking around and seeing the enemy, the opposition, surrounding them, and thinking, what, what in the world is he talking about? What is he seeing? What we see in this moment is that, uh, though they're both seeing the same situation, that they're seeing it so very differently. There's different perspectives that they had. The servant was focusing where? He was focusing on the enemy, the antagonism. He couldn't see past it. It was impossible. And Elisha's focus was on God, God's presence, God's provision, those who are with them. Verse 17, Elisha prayed a beautiful and a simple prayer over his servant. He prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What this is saying is that the servant's eyes were his perspective was limited. He couldn't see past the antagonism. He was wrapped with fear, and his, his eyes were not allowed to see what was more deeply there. Do you wish that you could have seen this moment where this servant went from this place of fear, focusing on the, the enemy with a sheer panic that he is experiencing, from that of realizing that he was surrounded by God's powerful presence? In that one simple prayer, Lord, open his eyes. It was like this other curtain was ripped open and that he was able to see the display of a much deeper story that was at work. If our eyes could see, I mean, are we surrounded now? Now as we meet. Verse 18, as the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So like the opposite prayer. Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elijah had asked. The same God that could cause the servant could see could also cause this army to be blind. I like to imagine the chariots and the soldiers coming down, charging with their yells. And in the moment, they are dropping their swords. They're dropping their shields, rubbing their eyes. They're so disoriented. And how would we expect the story to be written from here? How would we expect our culture to write this story here? Now, now that the army was, uh, was vulnerable, now that they couldn't see, then Elisha would then take up the sword and cut down the enemy. This is how God provides. 
to silence the voice of the enemy. But that's not the story that God was interested in writing. And for me, this is when this story gets so, so good. Uh, this is when this story, I think, can teach us so much about what antagonism uh, can do and be in our life and how we can unsubscribe from it. In verse 19, Elisha then told him, This is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man that you are looking for. I wonder how long this uh, trek would have been as these men followed the sound of Elisha walking about. I wonder if these men expected in the blindness that as they were walking and following Elisha, I wonder if they expected an ambush as they went along the way. I don't think they expected this prophet to do what he did. Verse 20, as they entered the city, Elisha said to them, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? This is what we're taught to to do with our enemy, that God provided a way the people who attack us, we now have the opportunity to attack them. We can end this. We can end it with them. And they are justified in doing that, right? Maybe even they had the, this spiritual script of like, this will teach the world God is not to be messed with. This is how we're going to have peace. We're going to take up our swords. But that's not the peace that God was interested in on this day. Verse 22, Elisha answered this king, Do not kill them. Would you kill those who you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. What? (laughs) These people have been trying to attack us over and over again and you you want us now to provide for them? Give them their needs that they can just go back restored and strengthened? Isn't that the opposite of what we want? This prophet is trying to point out a different way. In many ways, he's also saying that one of his points is, you didn't even capture them. They belong to God. These people belong to God, and this is what God wants you to do. God wants you to bless them, to set aside the script of antagonism for a little bit, to feed them, to bless them. And so they do that. They obeyed Elisha. So they prepared, and this is verse 23, so he prepared a great feast for his enemy. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. And get load of this last sentence of the story. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This story ends with peace, and it's just not the peace this world expects. Or in Acts, it's not the peace from aggression or dominance or violence. It's the peace that is found through generosity, vulnerability, faithful courage. This story is teaching us that God's ways are not the ways of this world. This story is giving us an example of what Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann called the prophetic imagination. He looks like someone who would be an Old Testament scholar, right? Walter Brueggemann, he he talked about prophetic imagination, that the role of the prophets in the Bible, and maybe the role of God's people today is to allow others to imagine a different world, to imagine a different way of being. Elisha, this prophet, is helping 
everyone around him see the world differently. Have you noticed that theme throughout this whole story of sight and blindness? We see here that Elisha is being used by God to allow people to see and imagine a different world. His servant now sees that God's powerful presence is surrounding him. The Arameans now are seeing, after being made blind and seeing again, they now see that Israel has a God who will fight for them. And the king of Israel now sees that the way of God is that of blessing and of generosity. This is what prophetic imagination does in our life. It helps us to imagine a different world. A world that's not fixed on the antagonisms that come to us over and over and over again. A world that's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Instead, we now can see a world where peace comes through generosity, vulnerability, and undeserved mercy. Can we see that world? Can we imagine that world? Do we believe that God even could use us, use us to enact prophetic imagination, to open up the eyes of our culture and our day and age, open up the eyes of Austin to see a different way of being, being together as a society? So how does this bizarre Old Testament story teach us how to unsubscribe from antagonism? I just want you just to take a second now and just consider what is the most prevalent antagonism in your life? Like, what's the most common antagonism in your life? It might be an actual relationship with someone. It could be a group in which you're in opposition against or a cause that you just seem, your passions seem to run high. Where in your life is there bitterness, contention, and discord that seems not, not to go away? Jesus declared in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In the midst of antagonism that just surrounds our life, we are called to bring about peace, to be peacemakers. So let's, let us consider how we can unsubscribe from antagonism and create more peace with God. I think the first step is that we have to bring our antagonism to God. Whoever you thought of in that moment, your first step might be to bring that person that group to God, that's our first calling. We need to think of who we have made the other be in our life and actually walk with them to the presence of God. We think of our prayer life that to be a place where we need to come and just profess our love and our worship of God and then maybe ask for some need. What we often don't do is actually bring the most difficult relationships in our life into the presence of Christ with us. Even this morning as I was thinking about this message, I was just thinking about how many times in the Psalms the psalmist is, is bringing to God their relationship with their enemy. If you've read through the Psalms, it happens over and over and over again. In worship, to bring to worship, God, this is my enemy. This is who I despise. This is the person I wish that you would destroy and end. And this is welcomed by the Bible. I think the reason why is because we know this first step towards peace means that we just have to bring that antagonism to God, to invite God into that space. Because antagonisms will not heal if they're left in the dark. They must be brought into the light. St. Francis of Assisi said this, Before you speak of peace, 
You must first have it in your heart. Before we can actually enact peace in this world, we need to see if we can actually hold it within our own heart. That is the task of prayer. We first take that antagonism to God. Then secondly, I think we are called to question the script of antagonism. Quite often we enter into debates and the issues of society with two sides that are entrenched. Like they are firm, they're not going anywhere. They are fixed. So therefore, as we enter into this antagonism, we now have two options, this side or that side. And there's very, very, very little room for nuance, little room for conversation or discernment. I think for us to unsubscribe from the antagonisms that we have surrounding our lives, we must enter into them not under the terms given to us by this world. I see this so often, even in the church world, that we will co-opt antagonisms and we actually find the sense of unity there. You know the saying, there's no way to have unity better than to have a common enemy. That is the way it is also with church. We can fabricate unity by saying we despise or or against the same people. We define our communities not by who we are for or what we're for, but who we're against, who we're politically against, which denomination do we chastise and belittle, what social issue do we oppose. To rally against someone or something and give the community, we, we can give a lot of energy to that. But the problem is, anytime we have our sense of identity wrapped around an antagonism like that, there's a shelf life to it. It will give energy, but just for a little while. Then we'll have to find another enemy to hate together in the name of the Lord. And in the midst of all of this, we are centering our identity. It's misplaced in antagonism. What we find in Jesus is that Jesus was masterful at not entering into antagonisms with a script given by the world. For example, there once was this debate uh, that was happening around taxes, and people wanted Jesus to enter into it. They asked Jesus, Jesus, is it right for someone to pay the tax to Caesar? And I love how Jesus responded to this. His first words in this encounter was saying, why are you trying to trap me? Because that's what antagonisms are. They're a trap. They trap our energy, they trap our identity, they trap us and just move us into another script. Jesus said, why are you trying to trap me? But then his response is such that he did not take the script given to him, but he challenged it and actually went deeper into it. What he did, he asked for a coin. Can I see your coin? Okay. And he said, whose image is on this? I said, Caesar. Okay, give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. What are you saying about is, You see that Caesar's image is on this coin, this tax that you're wanting? Okay, you need to give that to him. But the answer is actually, but give to God who's God's. Where is God's image? God's image is us, people. And Jesus is saying, you need to give to to God, God's people. You need to respect and value people, one another, in such a way that honors the one whose image it bears. So we see how Jesus, he actually enters into this conflict and he shifts the script. The one that you're against right now, they are bearing the image of God. You need to give them to God. Use that money to care for them as well. Again and again, Jesus avoids answering antagonism with those prescribed options. He would give an answer that would both challenge the assumptions of both sides and actually point to something deeper, a deeper need. I believe that we need to learn this way to unsubscribe from antagonisms in our life. 
When we're asked, hey, which box are you in? Are you pro this or pro that or anti this or anti that? We should learn to question the script of antagonism. We need to learn to find a different way that enacts a prophetic imagination, opening people's eyes to see a different reality. Why? We don't belong to this world. We're part of a different kingdom. So we should not be surprised when the way of Jesus doesn't fit neat and tight into the options and the issues of this world. And after we have privately thought and prayed about that antagonism, bringing it to Christ, and after we have questioned the script that's given to us, believe then next we're called to enact adventurous civility. This phrase, adventurous civility, is I got it from a radio show called On Being. They're talking about the civility project that they were doing. And I love this phrase, adventurous civility, because it's, it, it's adventurous to cross over the lines to whoever the other is and to practice civility. Hey, will you, will you teach me why you think the way you think? Will you teach me why you believe the way you believe? And it's, so we practice civility not so we can find holes in their, in their arguments or get our ammo ready to blast them when they misspeak. But we do that so we can understand, we can enter into it to see the humanity of their position. This is adventurous because it's scary. Every adventure is scary. It's adventurous because we pause our agenda, we go to the other to seek to understand their perspective. And what we might find out is that this antagonism is much more complex than we realize. Now, let let me be clear, though, uh, to be civil in antagonism doesn't mean we water down our convictions. That's where I feel like usually this conversation goes sideways. We misconstrue civility as meeting in the middle, like finding common ground and just dissolving what what we had as convictions. Jesus never sacrificed a full devotion to God, never sacrificed it in civility, but he also never sacrificed the posture of love, hospitality, and mercy. That is what adventurous civility is. And after we practice adventurous civility, then we're finally able to respond to the ultimate calling we have in antagonisms, which is to love your enemy. All of this work, I think, is so that we can finally be in the place where we can obey the commandment to love. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43, said this, You have heard that it is said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 2,000 years ago, that was said, still believe today. But Jesus responds, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Follow, following the way of Jesus gives us such a challenge to love our, I love our, uh, our enemy, to pray for those who are persecuting us. This is such a huge challenge. For us. It's hard. But after we've brought that person to God in prayer, after we've questioned the script, we are then have the capacity to love. And notice this. What is the stakes? The stake is the fact that if we do this, that we may be children of your Father in heaven. We are actually displaying the image of the God who has given us his image, that we could be people who are demonstrating a different way, a different posture in life that reflects the Father in heaven. This is our calling in the midst of antagonisms. It's for us to enter into it such a way that it's pointing to a a different kingdom. I love what Catholic uh, social activist Dorothy Day once said. 
I really only love God as much as I love the person I love least. If you want to know who you lo- if you really love God, how are you loving your enemy? Now, love does not mean agreeing wholeheartedly or welcoming the enemy carte blanche into your life, but it does mean seeking a, to love in a way that's a reminder of Jesus. We're reminded of Jesus' words, wounded, our wounded Savior, what he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus loved the enemy till the end, and God wants this love to continue to be extended into this world. That is the good news. And the challenging news is this. God's love is being extended through us. In particular, in the antagonisms of our life, that is where God wants his love to be extended into this world. And much like the story of Elisha, it is through this love that Jesus will open our eyes. Just like the story of Elisha, we were once far from Christ, but in Christ we have now been brought close. And we've been given this banquet of love and mercy undeserved. In Christ we are able to return home knowing that that the war is over. The antagonisms, any sort of antagonism between us and God is over. It's been settled. We've been won over by Christ, by his love and his grace and his mercy. And as we understand that, as we understand that love that has met us in the midst of our conflict with God, then we have been set free to walk into the antagonisms in our day, to extend that love so that maybe, so that maybe, eyes can be opened. Eyes can be opened and imagination could be opened to see a new kingdom where we're all surrounded by the powerful love of Jesus. May our eyes be open to that reality.